Good morning again, CBC. Happy New Year to all of you. I hope you had a great uh, New Year's Eve and New Year's and just an entire holiday season. Uh, this past week, Alyssa and I concluded one of our most cherished holiday traditions. Every year, right around Thanksgiving, we begin a month-long journey through all eight Harry Potter movies. And this is a tradition that started years ago, before we had kids. And I know it's kind of weird. I know that the Harry Potter movies are not Christmas movies. But they all have like a 20-minute like section in them with winter and snow. Sometimes they open presents. and one of them, there's like a snowball fight. And so, I don't know, for whatever reason, these movies just kind of put us in the Christmas spirit. It's fun, we enjoy it, and it takes us really about a whole month because we only watch about an hour every night. Now, on top of the Christmassy elements, I actually really do enjoy these movies a lot for many different reasons. But one of the things that I really appreciate about these movies is the way the story unfolds, the continuity from movie to movie to movie. That as these characters grow, as they go from little kids to almost full-grown adults over the course of eight movies, we see the same themes uh, develop over time. We see these themes expressed in new ways. Themes like friendship, power, prejudice, dealing with tragedy and death. And I find the con this continuity to just be kind of satisfying, that at the end of the eighth movie, we're tying up these themes that were introduced in the first movie. It's the same reason why I like movies like The Lord of the Rings and, and watching the Marvel Cinematic Universe, because it's, again, satisfying to see things develop. And this morning, we get a chance to see how the Bible has this same kind of continuity, even more so this same kind of satisfying narrative, that as much as the story develops and changes, there are some themes, some truths that span the entire story and don't change. Things like the character of God and our calling as God's people. And today we're going to be jumping back into our series on the book of Romans. Paul's letter to the Romans, this beautiful exposition of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we'll be looking at one of the most important components of the gospel, but also one of the in, most important themes of the entire biblical story, the concept of faith. And I think this passage is so powerful because it not just tells us something about faith, but it invites us into a larger story of faith. It shows us what faith is and hopefully in doing so inspires us to a deeper faith. And so before we jump into the passage, what I want to do really quickly is just give a quick recap of where we are in the book of Romans. We started this series in October and we're planning on going for at least a year through the entire book. We're taking our time. But we took a break in December because uh, we did a Christmas series. And so we might need a little bit of a refresher, a little bit of a 
previously in the book of Romans to catch up on where we are. So let's start with the big picture. What is Romans about? In Romans chapter 1, Paul begins his letter with this amazing thesis. He says, the gospel is the power of God for salvation for all those who believe. The gospel is the righteousness of God revealed. And Paul is laying his cards on the table here. He's saying, here is what I want you to understand. And this is just kind of my way of putting it. It's that the gospel proves God's faithfulness because in it, God does what he always said he would, redeems and restores sinful people through faith. God accomplishing this purpose, restoring and redeeming people through faith, it shows how faithful he is. And that's kind of the, the truth that he's explaining and expanding throughout the entire book of Romans. And so far in this series, we've really kind of covered one particular aspect of this argument. We've really focused in on the problem of our sinfulness. This problem that needs to be solved. At the heart of the gospel is the question, how can God redeem people who are so sinful, who turn away from him constantly, who do evil constantly? How could God take this wicked people who have rejected him and make them righteous? And on top of that, how can he do this? How can he redeem humanity in the way he said he would? Through this chosen people, through his special covenant with Israel. And in our last message before the break, uh, we got a glimpse at our answer. Eric preached an awesome message. If, if you haven't listened to it, I, I'd encourage you to do so. Because really, the rest of Romans is going to explain the truth that Eric presented to us uh, at the end of November. But in this message, he told us that the answer is pretty simple. It's through Jesus. In Jesus' life and death and resurrection, we have the solution to all these questions, the solution to our problem. That in Jesus, we have a faithful Israelite who took our guilt and punishment, who died so that we could be saved, not by being good, not by keeping the law, but by God's grace. And again, this is the foundation for the rest of Romans, this idea of a righteousness through faith in Jesus. And for the next several months, we're going to unpack this idea, what it means, how it works, what it means for us and how we should live and how we should do church. That's how we're going to spend the better part of 2021, understanding this idea inside and out. And this morning, as I said, we're going to talk about uh, one of the most important pieces of this puzzle, faith. Faith is such a significant part of the gospel. Think about some of these gospel ideas, salvation by grace through faith. It's through faith that we are declared righteous. Paul says the righteous will live by faith. 
Faith is an essential part of the gospel. And so understanding what faith is, is an important starting point as we jump back into our series. And so that's what we're going to do this morning. So if you have your Bibles, uh, would you open them up and turn with me to Romans chapter 4. And once again, when we left off at the end of Romans 3, we had this kind of revelation of righteousness through faith in Jesus. But this leads to an important question, a question about the larger story. So Romans chapter 4, verse 1. Paul writes, What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, discovered in this matter? Now I want to stop here and talk about this question that Paul asks us. Because this question frames the entire chapter. The question frames our entire discussion of faith. But it's kind of a strange question. The NIV translates it basically as, what did our forefather Abraham discover in this matter? Or what did Abraham discover about faith? I think a more precise way of phrasing this question, given the context, is this, how is Abraham our forefather? What Paul is really asking us is, what is the relationship between Abraham's faith story and our faith story? How are we connected to Abraham's faith, to what he was called to do? And really, it's a question about legacy. Uh, I was talking to someone recently about Uh, different New Year's traditions. And she shared with me that during a normal year, uh, non-COVID category, her favorite thing to do, her favorite part about New Year's is getting together with her family for a mochizuki. Now, for those of you who don't know what that is, it's basically a a gathering where people uh, meet up to turn rice into mochi. And I've never done it. I don't know a ton about it, but I think I know the basics. Is you basically got rice, you put it in a big bowl, you take a big hammer, and you hit the rice until it gets super mushy. And I think there's more to it than that, but that's the basics. I probably should have done a little research before I talked about what a mochizuki was, but you get the idea. But anyway, she was telling me about how much fun this is, and, and what I shared was that I really wish that my family did something like this. And not because I really want to do it, although the hammer sounds pretty fun, but more so because I wish my kids got to experience this kind of tradition. I wish my kids uh, had some kind of connection like this to their Japanese heritage. Uh, As you could tell from my depth of understanding about the mochizuki, I'm not the most connected to my Japanese heritage. I'm about the least Japanese Japanese person out there. And my kids are only half Japanese. And so I think about this sometimes, about this cultural legacy that I want them to be a part of. I want them to feel connected to where they came from. Right now, the most Japanese thing Grayson does is eat rice and seaweed, and the most Japanese thing Kaya does is 
but doing well in school. So we've got some work to do. And here in Romans 4, Paul brings up Abraham because he's interested in this connection to a larger legacy of faith. Because Abraham was the father of our faith. He was the OG faithful person in Scripture. The first person who God called to experience a relationship with him. It was through Abraham that God said he would redeem the nations. And so for Jewish and Gentile Christians alike, how God dealt with Abraham and how Abraham responded was meaningful. No matter what shape the gospel was going to take, there is a faith tradition that we're connected to. A faith tradition that can't be severed, can't be broken. And so in the rest of this passage, what Paul is doing is answering this question. How is Abraham our forefather, our spiritual forefather? How are we connected to this legacy of faith? And Paul answers this question with three main ideas, three points that kind of build on each other. And the first point is this. Abraham was declared righteous by faith, not works. Let's go ahead and read verses 2 and 3. So Abraham asked this, or Paul asked this question, how is Abraham our forefather? And verse 2 says, if in fact Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now this whole section is a little bit confusing. But the thrust of these two verses and the next 11 verses is to show us that Abraham's faith is not different than ours. It's not a different version of faith. Abraham wasn't justified by a different mechanism than you and I. The gospel reality, justification by grace through faith, justification not by works, that was Abraham's story too. And that might sound kind of strange to us because I think we have a tendency to think about this great disconnect between the Old and the New Testament, between Old Covenant, New Covenant, before Jesus, after Jesus. And there are certainly some differences. But we see in this matter of faith a great sense of continuity. We see this clearly in Romans 4. And Paul quotes directly from Genesis 15, 6. Where God says, or the author says, Abraham believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. This is an Old Testament passage from the very beginning of our faith story as a people. And it's the exact same phrase we see here in Romans 4. That Abraham believed and God gave him a credit of righteousness. And what this means is that Abraham was a sinner. He was an ungodly, imperfect man. He was guilty, not deserving of a not guilty verdict. Not deserving of being righteous. 
But because of faith, God doesn't hold that sin against him. And he, instead, he counts him. He reckons Abraham. He declares him in the right, not guilty, righteous. And scripture is very clear. This declaration, this verdict is placed upon him by faith. It wasn't by works. It wasn't by keeping the law. It wasn't by circumcision. It wasn't by anything he did or anything he earned. It was by faith and faith alone. And that's really the thrust of the entire uh, 11, 12, 13 verses from 2 to 15. And we're not going to read that entire section. But Paul is building, building on this idea, making a case for this sense of continuity. That we as Christians are a part of Abraham's faith tradition, declared righteous by faith. And this brings up an important question. It's how? How can this be? How can Abraham, who lived thousands of years before Jesus, how can he have the same kind of faith that we have? And his answer in the next 10 verses is what I really want to focus on this morning. Because in answering it, we get to a, the deeper issue of what it means to have faith. What is a genuine saving faith from the beginning of the story to the end? So let's continue reading. Verse 16. Therefore, the promise comes by faith, so that it may be grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring, not only to those who have the law, but also to those who have the faith of Abraham. He is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. He is our father in the sight of God, in whom he believed, the God who gives life to the dead and calls into being things that were not. Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed and so became the father of many nations, just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. This is why it was credited to him as righteousness. Here Paul paints a simple, but I think kind of radical picture of genuine faith, of the kind of faith that connects us now to Abraham. And this is our second point this morning, that faith is a trust and reliance on the power and promise of God. Now before I, I explain this, let me be really clear. I am not saying that anything other than faith in Jesus should be the basis for our salvation. That anything other than faith in Jesus is what saves. That's clearly taught in Scripture and in We'll get to that in the next point. But what I think this passage is saying is that faith in Jesus is part of a much larger story of faith. 
that to believe in Jesus' death and resurrection is to believe something even bigger about who God is and what God is doing. See, let's look at what Paul says here. When he talks about Abraham having faith, what is it that Abraham believes? It clearly isn't a belief in Jesus because Abraham lived long before Jesus' time. Instead, Abraham believes this promise that God makes to him. God says that he would be the father of many nations. That he would make a great nation from his offspring. In Genesis 15, he says, Your descendants will be more numerous than the stars in the sky. And this promise is an explanation of a promise from Genesis 12. Where God tells Abraham, You will be a blessing to the nations. Through your descendants, the nations will be blessed. And for Abraham to believe this promise says so much about what he believed about God, about who God was and what he was doing. Because for one thing, at this point in human history, the world is a mess. Things are about as bad as they can be. People are sinful and broken. One of the phrases from earlier in Genesis is that people only did evil all the time. The idea of God blessing the nations, of God restoring the world to a relationship with him, and the idea of him doing that through this one guy, through Abraham, through little old me, just Abraham. The idea that God would do this is unbelievable. But on top of that, and even maybe more than that, is the fact that Abraham is an old man. I don't think I'm being offensive in using that language because the dude is almost a hundred. And these are Paul's words, not mine, but his body is almost dead. And scripture tells us that his wife Sarah, her womb was dead. She was barren. And yet in spite of all of this, in spite of all the evidence that suggested that none of this should be possible, Abraham believes God. He believes in a God who is good enough, who is powerful enough, who is committed enough to his promise to do what he said he would do. And he believes in a God who is powerful enough to overcome the brokenness in the world around him, the death in the world around him, and the brokenness and death in his own body, his own life, his own family, and bring life for all people out of that. To believe God in this specific situation about this specific promise is to believe in a God who is pretty amazing. N.T. Wright puts it this way, Abraham's faith consisted of looking away from his own situation and possibilities and continuing to trust God's promise and power and give him the glory, the reverse of the idolatrous human race described in Romans 1. 
Abraham looked beyond his situation, looked beyond his ability and his capacity. Abraham looked beyond his sinfulness and brokenness. He looked beyond everything he could see in the world around him. And he said, God, I believe you. I believe you're a God who can do this. And I will bet my life on it. I will live in trust in your promise. I will live in reliance on you. I'll go where you call me to go. I will do what you call me to do. And I'm not always going to be perfect. I'm not always going to get things right. I'm still going to make mistakes and sin, but I'm not going to waver. And my belief, my trust in who you are and in what you're doing through me. And that is precisely what Paul says in Romans 4.20. That he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. This is why it was credited to him as righteousness. Clear as day. This is the faith that brings righteousness. A belief in the power of God to do what he promised. Paul then puts the cherry on the top of the Sunday. He brings it all together with these final three verses, which explain how deeply Abraham's story, this faith that Abraham demonstrated, how that is connected to us and the faith that we're called to. Verse 23. The words, it was credited to him, were not for him alone, but also for us to whom God will credit righteousness for us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. See, to believe that Jesus, the Son of God, come to earth as a man, went to the cross, died to take the punishment for our sin so that we who belong to him, who are a part of his family, would be raised again with him as washed clean, not guilty, declared righteous. To believe that is to believe the very same promise as Abraham is to believe in who God is and what he's doing. It's to believe in a God who is good enough and powerful enough to do what he said he would do. It's to believe in a God who has the power to overcome the brokenness and death in the world around us and the brokenness and death in our own lives, our own bodies, and bring life to the world through us. It's to believe in a God who is committed to his promise and to believe that that promise, this plan for redemption, that it's happening, that it's gonna happen, that God is working. 
and that he's using us, his faithful people, to bring blessing to the nations. And ultimately, this is what it means to have a faith like Abraham, to be a part of this greater legacy of faith. It's to recognize our own inability to look at the world around us, to look at ourselves and see the messiness of all of it. And to look away from what we could do on our own, by our own ability, by our own merits, by our own strength, and simply trust in the power of God to make us, to declare us righteous and to bring life and blessing to the world around us. In his book, Love Does, Bob Goff tells a story about his wedding, or more specifically about his wedding cake. And he was a young man when he got married, and so he didn't have a lot of money to spend on the wedding. But he had a friend whose father was a baker, and so he goes to this uh, this friend's father, and he tells him, I have $150. Would you make me the best cake you possibly can? The baker is is gracious. He says, sure, I'll I'll make you a cake. Wedding day comes. The cake is delivered, and and it's beautiful. And so they take the cake. They place it on an AV cart, and they begin pushing it into the reception. But on its way, the cart hits a rock, and the cake topples over, layer by layer, into the parking lot floor gravel and just bits of rock and and dirt. So what did they do? He says they picked it up, they restacked it, they kind of reshaped it, and they served it. Bits of gravel and dirt and rock, all baked in. And Goff says this, Jesus seemed to say that all we would need to do is scrape together the pieces of our lives that had fallen on the ground, bring those pieces to him, and he would start using them. He didn't say he would ice over the grits of, fault and, of faults and failures either. He said he would use us in spite of the grits and faults and failures. What we would have to do is decide to move from the parking lot to the party. And I, just, I really like this picture of the Christian faith. And it demonstrates very clearly why faith is so important. Why having a faith in Jesus, but a faith in who God is and what he's doing through Jesus, why that's so important. Because it's this faith that believes, that trusts that God can use us for his perfect plan for what he is doing, what he can do, what we know he will do, that God can use us in spite of our grits and faults and failures. Faith is what allows us to see past those things, to see past our sin, to see past our doubts, to see past the immensity of the challenge before us and get up pick ourselves up from the parking lot and walk into the party, into the life he has for us. 
the calling he has for us. It's only that kind of faith to recognize who God is, to recognize what God is doing, to see and believe in who he is, that we can really be a part of that amazing wedding celebration. And so this morning, as we begin a, a, a new year, as we think about things we want to change, how we want to live, how we want to face the challenges before us. I just want to invite you to remember who God is. I want to invite you to remember the God of this amazing story who brings life from death over and over and over again. In Sarah's womb, to the empty grave, that God is working and moving because he is committed to us. He is committed to his plan for redemption. And he can use you. And so this morning, let's enter the new year not burdened by our sinfulness, not burdened by the messiness of the world around us. But let's place our trust and hope in a God who is that good to invite us into this calling, who is that powerful to do what he says he would do, and that faithful from the beginning of the story to the end. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for reminding us of, of who you are, for calling us to place our faith not in some pipe dream, not in some maybe, but in a God who we can trust, whose power, whose goodness, whose faithfulness is proven. And so, God, I pray that you would strengthen us with faith, that you would give us more faith to see and recognize who you are, how faithful you've been in this larger biblical story, but in the story of our lives as well. We thank you for sending Jesus as the ultimate proof that no matter where we are, no matter what we're struggling with, we can look to the cross and see who you are and see what you're doing. So God, we worship you now. We place our faith in you this year. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.